Luke 17, verse 20 says this. Jesus being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. Some of your Bible translations may say the kingdom of God is within you. Respectfully, I would say that's not the best translation, and I base that upon the audience to whom Jesus was speaking. He was speaking to the Pharisees, the Pharisees that challenged him, the Pharisees that were looking for a temporal kingdom, a political kingdom, a national kingdom, and they were always under, operating under presumptions that somehow they would be the top dogs when the kingdom came. And what they're seeing in Jesus' life at this point is they're seeing healings, they're seeing deliverances, they're seeing crowds shifting from um, the control that the Pharisees and the scribes had had over the people for so long, and they're now migrating to Jesus. A hunger is awakening, and they can't deny the works that Jesus is doing. And so they're feeling him out, and their question is this, when's the kingdom coming? Let's get to it. When's the throne going to be established? When can we get rid of these Romans? How can we topple the Gentiles and restore the uh, glory to Israel? When is it going to happen? And Jesus doesn't answer them when. He talks to them about how the kingdom is coming. And he's speaking to them and he's, he's giving, in essence, an answer to their question in the context of that moment. He's saying, oh, what you're looking for is for the banners. You're looking for the horns. You're looking for the mighty army. You're looking for the toppling. You're looking for all of the geopolitical nuances to the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it's coming. I want you to know something. The kingdom of God is in your midst right now. And it's because the king was standing there in their very presence. That's the blindness of man. The blindness of man is you can be standing in the presence of the king of glory and asking theological questions about, hey, when's, when's the kingdom going to get here? And they're standing there in the presence of the king. So the Pharisees weren't the last people to ask the wrong questions at the wrong time for the wrong reasons, which still goes on today. And so what we hope to do in this series is to approach this giving both a 10,000-foot view, but at times also very precise and particular views. I do believe we'll actually talk about some of the precursors to the second coming. That will be somewhere in this series. But today, this is what I want to tell you. It's always been the kingdom. It's always been the kingdom. The kingdom of God has always been the pulse in the divine arteries of God. It has always been what he's about. And it's my opinion that the largest need in the church today is for the church, Christians, to regain the proper paradigm on the kingdom. We need a renewed kingdom perspective. Most people in our culture associate their Christianity with church, with a local church with a slice of the church, a denominational church, or a church with the preferred traditions or approach to God. Most Christians, and I'm not being critical, but I am being factual, most Christians approach God that way, and they miss the kingdom because they're fixated on the tiny little trees that might make up that forest. Let me give you a couple of things, and then I'm going to, I promise you, you're going to get a bunch of Bible verses today, and these notes are always online. Don't, you don't have to try to write them down. You can go to mynewbridge.church and scroll down. It says notes right there, and you can get them later. But I want you to think with me. 
Jesus began his public preaching after John the Baptist announced, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Months later, Jesus appears on the scene and Jesus' first message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we'll use the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God basically synonymously. There's nuances to them, but for our purposes today, Jesus and John the Baptist pounce on the scene and they're saying this, they're saying the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. You say, yeah, that's how Jesus began his ministry. Well, hold on a second. That's how he continued his ministry. The primary thrust of Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry was the kingdom of God. The the first uh, petition in the Lord's Prayer is, let your kingdom come. Uh, The Beatitudes, you have this in the Matthew um, chapter number um, 5 and verse number 3. The first Beatitude promise is that the kingdom of heaven is granted to the poor, poor in spirit. And then you remember this, the overlaying paradigm that Christians are going to live their life with is, is what we just sang, seeking first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so the kingdom wasn't anything small to Jesus. As a matter of fact, it was so crucial that Jesus told the wealthy and the powerful, he said to them, you're going to have a hard time getting in. And the question might be, well, why? Because Jesus also taught in order to get into the kingdom, you have to become like a little child. Jesus looked at these same scribes and Pharisees at one point, and he said, you're not going to enter the kingdom, and the work that you're doing is preventing others from entering the kingdom. By the way, that's what religion does. Religion and legalism and overt traditionalism actually obscures the kingdom and keeps people trapped in a lesser loyalty. And Jesus said that to the Pharisees. And so when we're looking at Jesus' ministry and we're looking at John the Baptist's ministry, and you'll see it some in the apostles, and of course the book of Revelation explodes upon us with all of the events that lead up to the climax of the visible kingdom at the second coming, we recognize that I think it might be wise for us as the people of God maybe to at least consider the fact that our messaging in the last 200 years in the Western church is no longer really been about the kingdom. Do you know what it's been? Ask Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven when you die. That is the message, the overarching message of much of the church in the West. It is pray this prayer so you can see God when you die. And of course, there is the the assumption of a discipleship, but the reality is, is we're discipling people into something lesser than a kingdom passion, a kingdom hunger, and a kingdom identity. And so, yeah, this is, I believe, um, part of the Part of the generation before the coming of the Lord, I do believe you're going to see a a clarion call, a trumpet, an alarm to return to the messaging of the king himself. So, when did it all begin? When was it? Well, let me give you this. Let's let's get very Old Testament for a minute because what I want to do is I want to go ahead and submit to you and establish that the concept of the kingdom isn't something that just arose with the message of John the Baptist or arose with the preaching of Jesus. Matter of fact, let me give you a couple of verses to establish this, that God is the king over all of creation. Psalm 10, verse number 16. I believe these will be up on the screen. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Second Chronicles 26. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule 
over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none are able to withstand you. Isaiah 37, verse 16. We'll, we'll have several verses from Isaiah today. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, watch this, this is majestic language. Enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. You've got Psalm 95, verses 3 through 6. Very clear here. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are depths of the earth, the height of the mountains also is his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come. Now, again, this is what you do in front of a king. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And if all of that wasn't enough, probably the clearest statement of the kingship of God is in Psalm 103 in one verse, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God is a king. Is he a father? Of course he's a father. Is he a redeemer? Yes, he's a redeemer. Is he a lord and a master? He is all of those things. But the, 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 the narrative, the story that God is telling is not simply one of being a father to the orphan. It's not simply of being a master or a lord over the servant. But he is a king who is offering his kingdom and inviting us into his kingdom. And we get to, in the end, Jesus is teaching us that, that the Father's good pleasure is to give us the kingdom. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you have this establishing that God is king over all creation. But what is interesting is that it, the heartbeat of God is that that kingship would often be delegated to humans of his choosing on the earth ultimately to lead to the one human, the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ, who will reign humanly and divinely forever and ever and ever as the king above every other king. So where did it all begin? I want to submit to you this. I believe though the word king is not used in the creation story and God's interaction with Adam. The word dominion is, and that is a royal term, and it spe speaks of the rule of the, the uh, potentate, of the sovereign, of the king. So let's look at this um, and go, well, you don't have to go with me, but let's, let's look in Genesis chapter 1. In verses 26 through 30, and let me just give you three things. This is not my primary thrust, but I want to go back to the very first human being on earth and God's interaction with him, and you start seeing that God offered his kingdom to Adam. Yeah. The original offer was from God the creator to Adam, his son. So Adam is granted dominion over all the animal life on the earth. God gives Adam ruling authority over all of the animal life. Adam is told later to have many children in order to subdue the earth and, again, to take dominion over it. That's in Genesis 1.28. Then Adam is given, it doesn't sound altogether spectacular, but he's given control over all of the plant life and, again, over every animal that is on the earth, and that is in verse number 30 of chapter 1. So let me give you this. In short, Adam is, is, is called to rule over the entire earth as a subordinate king underneath God who is the true king over all. It is Adam who is to advance God's dominion outside the boundaries of the ordered Garden of Eden so that it branches out into the farthest reaches of creation. That was the original intent of God to Adam, that Adam would rule in kingly dominion over all the creation. But Adam rebelled. Adam actually listened to one of those creatures, 
He listened to the hiss of the serpent, empowered by the deception of Satan. Adam and Eve, as you well know, fell and rebelled against God. And not only was uh, Adam's soul impacted, but his authority and his kingship and his status and the unflawed dominion and rule was removed from him. So we see from the very first human appointed to rule the earth by God, to rule the earth, there was good intention but poor execution. He failed. You'll see that pattern with every single person that God established as king all throughout human history until you come to Jesus Christ. So let's, let's flash forward. 2,000 years, Adam forfeits his kingship and God covenants with Abraham. In Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12 through 17, you have God choosing Abram, renaming him Abraham later, and he, he puts Abraham in a position of, of rule and also of covenant and destiny. Let, let me give you this. God said to Abraham, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And here's this little emphasized clause in the Abrahamic covenant. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So we're we're moving 2,000 years past um, Adam. Now God is dealing with Abram. And in the Abrahamic covenant, we all know that God was promised Abraham seeds as many as the stars in the sky and as many as the grains of sand on the shore. But we also know about the land, the land that was given to Abraham and his seed forever and ever. And what we realize also in this moment for the context we're in, that God just drops this little nugget that from Abraham's lineage, from the Hebrews, kings would proceed from him. So with Adam, it was very vague in general, just the concept of dominion. Moving into Abraham, it's a little more specific because the actual word kings is used in connection to Abraham. But go forward another 900 years, and this is where it starts getting very specific with a man named David. Look with me in in, uh, 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 12 through 16, because moving from Adam to Abraham, then it becomes very clear with David what God is doing when he makes David and promises an everlasting kingship to David's lineage. This is what the word says in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you sh- who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He's speaking specifically of Solomon there, but there are some further prophetic nuances that will come. He says of Solomon, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's that word? Forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. God goes on to talk about um, excuse me, Solomon committing iniquity and being disciplined. But here it gets prophetic down towards the end. He says, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. If we did not have another passage in all of the word of God, that would be sufficient to see that God made covenant with David to establish a king from David's bloodline that would rule over Israel forever and ever and ever and ever. So when we see this, we're saying to ourselves, okay, the Davidic covenant, that's beautiful. But I want you to know something. We don't have time to go through all of these verses 
But I want you to know something. From David to Solomon, and then all of the kings of Israel that came after them, almost every one of them was an abject failure. They had power, they had promise, they had riches, they had splendor, but they didn't have a heart for God. They, they had all of the power, but failed to recognize and honor the king over them, God himself. And so they would constantly go through cycles of leading the people into sin, experiencing chastisement from God. Many of them were murdered because of their ways and their sons or other men would come and take the throne. But the history of Israel's human kings was nothing but a history of failure and sin and dire consequence. And yet the promise was is that God would always have a man from David's lineage on the throne. When Babylon came down at the apex of the failure of Israel and the kings, Babylon comes down, sweeps the city, kills most of the people, takes away lots of captives back up to uh, Babylon. And at that time, if you're living in Israel, and if you knew the covenants and you knew the promises at all, you would have lost utter hope that there would ever again be a king from the loins of David. Everything they saw said, I, we must have misunderstood the promises. We have forfeited the promises. We have failed. The consequences are upon us. The city is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. As a people, we've been scattered. We are now captives. And yet God knew that this day would come. And that is why before the day ever came, before Babylon ever came, we find out something else that God had done. He had inserted prophetically hope beyond their failures, promises that eclipsed their rebellion, that no matter who they were and what they did, that God's covenant to Abraham and to David would be that there would be a man of Israel to rule the nations forever and ever. And so we see it with Adam, we see it with Abram, we see it with David, but also, let's look prophetically. Let's look at some of these prophets and what they said. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you that Israel's kings failed God, but God, in spite of them, promised a glorious kingdom. Let me read to you several verses out of Isaiah chapter number 35. And this, my friends, is a description of the renewal of the earth in the kingdom age. This has not happened yet. This is, was written... Uh, before the captives went, into, uh, went up to Babylon, before they were ransacked, before their full uh, retribution from God had fallen on them, God in Isaiah 35 was telling them, all of this calamity is going to befall you. That's all throughout the book of Isaiah, especially towards the later chapters. But he says to them, but I want you to know what I'm going to do. And it reads a little bit like this in Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. Those are, those are majestic terms. Those are royal terms. The glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Therefore, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have the anxious heart, be strong, don't fear, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you, Israel. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals when they lie down, the grass will become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. This is a reference to the king's highway. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not pass over it. It will belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. No lion will be there, no, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This prophetic word from Isaiah had an original meaning to its original audience. It was meant to comfort them after all that he had prophesied would befall them because of their rebellion. It is as if Isaiah, speaking the heart of God, wants to say to them, you're going to be punished. You can't sacrifice your children to Molech and Chemosh and not be punished. You can't kill the prophets generation after generation and not be punished. You can't bow down to false pagan gods and sacrifice on false altars. You can't engage in both heterosexual and homosexual deviancy unrestrained and not experience chastisement. God will take you away. Jeremiah had told him 70 years of captivity. Isaiah had said, but that is not the end of the story. Discipline and chastisement for the people of God is never the end of the story. Why? Because we have a merciful king. We have a gracious king. We have a wise king. We have a king that was prepared ahead of time. And no failure on the part of God's people has ever caused God to say, Oh no, I don't know what to do. I didn't see that coming. He knows. And he said, Yeah, it may feel like a desert. He's speaking both metaphorically and factually and actually. That there is coming a renewal. I don't have time to go there. But in the kingdom age, the desert will be like a garden. The parched ground will be springing forth. The, the, the children will play with the lion and the serpent. It's going to be an amazing time where even nature screams out, God is a glorious king. So all of that was told to them ahead of time. That was what we call a pre-exilic prophet. It was a prophet who spoke before the exile. But how about Daniel, who's an exilic prophet? He is in the exile. Look at what Daniel said in Daniel chapter number 2 and verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Zechariah 14.9, he's after the exile. So pre-exile, during exile, and after exile. What's the message of the heart of God? My kingdom, my kingdom, my kingdom, my kingdom. The Lord will be king over all the earth. Zechariah 14.9, on that day the Lord will be one and his name one. Again from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 and 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Those are royal descriptions. They're kingly descriptions. He shall be exalted. He will sprinkle many nations. Now watch this. Kings, inferring lesser kings, merely human kings, political kings, geographical kings, they will shut their mouths because of him. 
It is the reality that when the King of kings and the Lord of lords establishes his, his visible throne on planet earth, that the response of all those who were lesser kings beforehand is they will have their mouths shut. They will have nothing to say because they will be in the presence of absolute majesty and authority and glory. Then in Daniel chapter 7, this is the last one in the Old Testament, and then we'll finish up with John the Baptist and Jesus. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Let, let me just give you this. That has not been manifestly fulfilled yet. That is coming to a planet near you. It is going to happen. That literally, King Jesus, you need to, you need to not just amen this or, or nod at this. You need to imbibe this. This needs to get in our veins. That the Son of God is going to return in the same body that he ascended in. He's coming back. And he is going to establish his rule, his dominion, his kingdom on this planet. Can I pastor you for just two minutes on this? That's why it is beneath us as the children of God to get all worked up over temporary little geopolitical kingdoms. It is beneath you. It is as if some of us lose our minds in American politics. If you are being awakened and drawn and motivated and stirred by whatever side of the aisle you're on, constantly about what the press is saying, what the president is saying, what the Senate is saying, what this is doing. And if you're being driven by that, I can guarantee you something. You're not being rooted in the kingdom. It's been usurped in your heart. A rival kingdom has come to displant the kingdom of God from your life. So the, the promise of God's kingdom was never rescinded due to Israel's failures. You have exilic and post-exilic prophets that are saying, no, the kingdom's still coming. Yeah. Malachi, the last chronological writer in the Old Testament, in chapter number 3 and then Isaiah 40, speaks of a forerunner that's going to come before this king, and we know that forerunner as John the Baptist. And so... Between Malachi and John the Baptist, no prophetic revelation was written. Silence, as it were, from heaven. One of the last things God said to, through an Old Testament prophet was that there will be one coming and he will go before the one I appoint. 400 years later, we find ourselves in the life of John the Baptizer. I know we were used to calling him John the Baptist, but I'm just weird. So John the Baptizer... He's the first person to specifically announce the kingdom. 400 years of silence. God could have said anything. He could have spoken to Israel about their morals, about their generosity, about their care for the, the poor and the orphan and the needy. All those things are important. He could have spoken to them about um, Rome and the time of the Gentiles, but that's not the first thing after 400 silence. When, when Malachi stopped writing 400 years earlier, he's referencing the coming king. When the message picks back up four centuries after Malachi, what's the message? It's the same message. So look, in Matthew 3, verses 1 through 3, 
In those days, Matthew writes, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What's his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken, speaking of John the Baptist, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I just find that significant, folks. Now, now follow with me here. I'm beating the same drum at the same tempo because I want you to get it. I'm not trying to give you 50 clever things. I'm trying to give you one thing, deep and embedded and lasting. What is that one thing? That from Adam, it was about God establishing his dominion through a human representative. To Abraham, the same thing. Through David, the same thing. Through the prophets in the midst of Israel's blatant failure and rebellion against God, the message did not change. Now John the Baptist comes, and the first thing he said is, you better get your heart and your head ready, metanoia, repent, change the way you think, because the kingdom of heaven is arriving. That's what he says. Of course, he would decrease eventually so that Jesus, the one that he ran beforehand for, could increase. So what about Jesus' message? Have you thought about it? Think with me over your history. If you're new to the faith, you've got a short history, but a lot of you have been saved a long time and been in church a long time. Think of how infrequently you have heard messages on the kingdom of God. You've, ha you've heard tons of messages on how to be happy. You've heard ad nauseum messages on why you should tithe. You've been strong-armed and guilted about your lack of witnessing through messages on evangelism. Our morality, I mean, we talk, and listen, I'm not, I'm not against morality, biblical morality. That's actually part of the kingdom. But it's, it's not the whole of the kingdom. Everything that we seem to inflate to kingdom-like proportions in the church are actually just smaller components of the kingdom. The kingdom is ultimately about the glory of the king. And, and not just a hidden in the individual heart glory, but a manifest universe stop in your tracks glory that every knee will bow, every tongue confess, every eye will behold. The whole creation is groaning until redemption, until it is set right by the one that created it. So Jesus comes, and at the, at the, his entire earthly ministry, his primary message was the kingdom. And let me show it to you. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what's the first message Jesus preached? From that time, Jesus began to preach, Matthew 4, 17, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So if you can snapshot the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he would proclaim to the crowds as the multitudes would gather, and we'll establish some of that in a moment, and he would proclaim the kingdom of God when he had a smaller group almost exclusively they would be male in the synagogues. He would teach the kingdom of God. So he preached it and he taught it. 
And the teaching and the preaching was accompanying, uh, being accompanied by validating supernatural signs and wonders that were meant not only to bless the people receiving that ministry and to express the heart of love from the Father to Israel, but it was also meant to arrest the attention of everybody listening to his words so that they would know this man does not teach like scribes teach, but he has authority and he has power. Why? Because he's a king. He's a divine king, fully human, fully divine, and he could have preached whatever he wanted. But he began his ministry saying, repent. Now, that's literally going to be the only call to action I give us today. Repent. The church needs to repent. And listen, you and I need to repent. It's not just the church, it's all of us. We need to repent. Why? Because we have amnesia concerning the kingdom. We get caught up in the tiny gears and we're missing the, 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 the actual vehicle. It's the kingdom that God is moving. Metanoia is the Greek word and it means change your thinking. Change your thinking. We actually have to intentionally harness our mind retrain the way we think of God, who he is, and what he is doing. We have to shift that and make sure it is aligned with what God's story is. Billy and I were talking and praying with Dustin earlier today, and Billy just said something very simply. Um, he says, yeah, we, we approach all of this with little theolo theological points, and in doing so, we miss the actual story. We're like the Pharisees. When's it going to happen? Okay, when's the rapture? Rapture is a, is a pre-trip, post-trip, mid-trip. Okay, and what's going to Tell me about the bowls. Tell me about the vials. Tell me about da, 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 da. And, and we get so caught up in that. And, and you can actually be obsessed with eschatology and end times and, and still not cultivate a heart of love for the king who's over all of it. And so we, we don't want to get trapped in all of this. We want to we say, okay, I, I have got to, I've got to assume that there's probably some realignment, some metanoia that needs to happen in my thinking. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his message was, repent, the kingdom of heaven's here. The kingdom of God is here. Um, I don't have time to go through all of it, but all throughout his earthly ministry. I mean, if you just go to Matthew chapter number 13 and read the parables, it's like 10 parables right there, and Jesus is using all of these parables to tell them this is what the kingdom is like. This is what the kingdom is like. This is what the kingdom is like. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And, and he even gets the disciples aside and he says, hey, let me tell you why I'm speaking in parables. Because those that have eyes to see and ears to hear are going to want to understand the kingdom and I am literally veiling it from those that don't want to hear it and don't want to see it. I'm speaking in parables because I want to entrust you the secrets, quote, the secrets of the kingdom. So, friends, this is not some kind of, you know, fringe thought. J Jesus even pointed towards the, uh, at, at the end of his earthly ministry. So, at the beginning of it, all during his earthly ministry, and then right before the crucifixion, Matthew 24, 25, and 26, he, he's speaking of the kingdom. Matthew 24, 14, I don't think these will be up on your screen, but... He says, the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 25, 34. 
the sheep and the goats. He, he's speaking eschatologically. He's speaking towards an event that has not occurred yet. And the, and the kingdom is still there. Listen to what he says. Then the king, he's speaking of himself in the second person. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That lets us know the kingdom was not some afterthought. The kingdom has been prepared for God's people from before the world was ever founded. Before there was a place for the kingdom to be unveiled, the kingdom existed in the heart of the Father. And then Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus is sharing that Passover with his disciples for the last time, he tells them to drink all of the cup. He says, this is my blood in the new covenant that is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is about to die for the sins of the world. And he's saying, I cannot wait to celebrate this with you again in the kingdom when it unfolds. Let's us know there's going to be a physical aspect to the kingdom. We're going to be able to eat and drink in the kingdom. See, this is where it moves from just kind of out there somewhere and it's kind of undefined and fluffy. And Jesus didn't ever present it that way. He's like, no, it's an actual kingdom. There's going to be an actual king, me, Jesus, on an actual throne in an actual city called Jerusalem. I'm going to rule over actual nations. It's, it's not a metaphor. Why am I yelling? I'm excited. <laughs> and so, say, okay, Jeff, well, he died. Did he say anything about the kingdom after? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Acts 1-3, he died, he paid for your sin, he atoned for our rebellion, our transgression, our indifference, our self-righteousness, our unrighteousness. He declared to the Father, it's finished, into my hands I commit, my, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, and Jesus gave his life on the cross and he atoned for us. And he provided for any that will repent and trust him to have access to become citizens in this kingdom forever. And so he, he rose again. And so in Acts 1-3, the Bible says that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Just know this. Jesus went out of his way after the resurrection to make sure people knew he was actually alive, physically alive, like in a body a supernatural body it could pass through doors it could pass through walls but it could also eat fish on the beach side that he barbecued for peter when he brought peter back into the ministry and and so he, it, the bible says he appeared to them for 40 days speaking to them about the kingdom of god it didn't miss a beat the message has been consistent from god to his people, from the dominion granted to Adam, which Adam forfeited, to the, the promise given to Abraham, which is the platform of, of the new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant is attached to even you and I even being able to name the name of Jesus, to David, where it got very specific, it went very broad to Adam, slightly more specific with Abraham, very specific with David, and then revelation into Jesus who said, I'm the king, I am the king. I am the king. I have a kingdom. And so he says, 
I'm going to go back to my father in 40 days, paraphrasing here. I want to tell you a little bit more about the kingdom. It is mind-blowing to me that in the, the undeniable reality of the kingdom of God with King Jesus as the focal point, the center point of that kingdom, it is amazing to me how little I have intentionally focused that on that in my own public preaching ministry. And I'm not the only guy. You know why? Because there's a lot of itches that want to be scratched in the church. And instead of us remaining enthralled with the kingdom, we glance at it, and then we go back to whatever the present itch is. And we glance over here, and we love it when we glance at it, but it's a little ethereal. It's not quite pragmatic enough for me, so I'm back to, I got to pay my bills. I got to work. I got to raise my children. I got to do this. And, and, and there are so many little nuances, and it's not to say that those things don't need to be biblically addressed. They do. But when we make any lesser component of the kingdom to become the kingdom, listen, let me aggravate the evangelist in the room. The, the, the core of God's mission is not evangelism. It's not even discipleship. Not you said, Jeff, come on, the Great Commission, make disciples. Right, I get it. Make disciples unto what? You see, my friends, it's all about him. The gospel is not about us. It is about God and his glory and his supreme worth. And we make it, we just make it about us. And that's why we, we train people to present five verses out of the book of Romans. And then when we think we got them right where we got them, we say, now pray this prayer. Jesus, please come into my heart. I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died for me and rose again on the third day. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. Amen. We say, great, you're going to heaven now. And then we move on to the next person. Now, that's, a, that's an, it's a, it's an exaggeration. I get it. And do I believe people can be saved by that prayer? Yeah, it's a better prayer than what I was saved by. I said, God, here, I've ruined my life. I give it to you. That, that's literally what I prayed on August 4th, 1994, and I was radically delivered from lots of stuff. So it's not about what you pray. My concern is, is that we've made it about what people pray. And so we, we reduce the kingdom to getting people to pray the prayer so they go to heaven when they die and they leave that thing thinking, oh, it's all about me. It's about me going to heaven when I die. It's about transportation, not transformation. That, that we literally, we, we, we want, listen, I, I know I'm being a little critical here, but I'm addressing an error because I want us to see, oh, it's possible that we've gotten it really wrong. So we take a component, something glorious and good like outreach and evangelism and discipleship, and we, we pump it up, we inflate it, and it rises up, and it gets so big and bloated that it actually obscures the, the thing that we're supposed to be enthralled with, which is the king himself. Pop a balloon, Dustin says. That's good. So friends, over the next several weeks, our desire is that we might spend time together in the word and in the spirit and that when we pray thy kingdom come thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven that we might actually know what we're asking for that it wouldn't be just a memorized prayer that Jesus taught that we man when the kingdom comes 
Did you, I think you said this. All other kingdoms have to go. It is a replacement. It is a dislodging. It is a supplanting. And before it happens visibly all across the earth, it needs to happen right here. I've got to realize there are a thousand undefined kingdoms asking me to sign citizenship papers. Be a kingdom to materialism. Be a kingdom, be a, be a citizen to the kingdom of materialism, uh, the, the kingdom of pleasure, the kingdom of Jeff, and another kingdom of Jeff, and a slightly different kingdom for Jeff for people who don't like the manifestation of this kingdom, and, and, and with the kingdom of self, the kingdom of religion, where, where some people in charge decades or centuries ago set up a way that Christ was to be interrelated with and it's unquestioned and unexamined and it becomes the kingdom to people. That goes on all the time. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to engage in some kingdom warfare. What does that mean? That we, we expose what isn't the kingdom. We call people out of that. We magnify the king who is the definition of his kingdom. And we invite people to go more deeply into that. Jesus said, you're going to be seeking something with your life. Seek first, not just chronologically, but prioritized. Seek more than anything the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the other stuff, it'll be added to you. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet.